Chapter 18, Part 1 of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. Chapter 18, Aircraft and Naval Operations, Part 1. When once the flying machine had indicated its possibilities in connection with land operations, it was only natural that endeavors should be made to adapt it to the more rigorous requirements of the naval service. But the conditions are so vastly dissimilar that only a meager measure of success has been recorded. Bomb-throwing from aloft upon the decks of battleships appeals vividly to the popular imagination and the widespread destruction which may be caused by dropping such an agent down the funnel of a vessel into the boiler room is a favorite theme among writers of fiction and artists but hitting such an objective while it is tearing at high speed through the water from a height of several thousand feet is a vastly different task from throwing sticks and balls at an aunt sally on terra firma the target is so small and elusive practically it is impossible to employ the flying machine whether it be a dirigible or an aeroplane in this field many factors militate against such an application in the first place there is a very wide difference between dry land and a stretch of water as an area over which to maneuver so far as the land is concerned descent is practicable at any time and almost anywhere but an attempt to descend upon the open sea even when the latter is as calm as the proverbial mill-pond is fraught with considerable danger the air currents immediately above the water differ radically from those prevailing above the surface of the land solar radiation also plays a very vital part in fact the dirigible dare not venture to make such a landing even if it be provided with floats the chances are a thousand to one that the cars will become waterlogged rendering reascent a matter of extreme difficulty if not absolutely impossible on the other hand the aeroplane when equipped with floats is able to alight upon the water and to rest thereon for a time it may even take in a new supply of fuel if the elements be propitious and may be able to reascend but the occasions are rare when such operations can be carried out successfully in operations over water the airman is confronted with one serious danger the risk of losing his bearings and his way for instance many attempts have been made to cross the north sea by aeroplane but only one has proved successful so far the intrepid aviator did succeed in passing from the shore of britain to the coast of scandinavia many people suppose that because an airman is equipped with a compass he must be able to find his way but this is a fallacy the aviator is in the same plight as a mariner who is compelled from circumstances to rely upon his compass alone and who is debarred by inclement weather from deciding his precise position by taking the sun a ship ploughing the waters has to contend against the action of cross currents the speed of which varies considerably as well as adverse winds unless absolute correction for these influences can be made the ship will wander considerably from its course the airman is placed in a worse position he has no means of determining the direction and velocity of the currents prevailing in the atmosphere and his compass cannot give him any help in this connection because it merely indicates direction 
unless the airman has some means of determining his position such as landmarks he fails to realize the fact that he is drifting or even if he becomes aware of this fact it is by no means a simple straightforward matter for him to make adequate allowances for the factor side drift is the aviator's greatest enemy it cannot be determined with any degree of accuracy if the compass were an infallible guide the airman would be able to complete a given journey in dense fog just as easily as in clear weather it is the action of the cross currents and the unconscious drift which render movement in the air during fog as impracticable with safety as maneuvering through the water under similar conditions more than one bold and skillful aviator has essayed the crossing of the english channel and being overtaken by fog has failed to make the opposite coast his compass has given him the proper direction but the side drift has proved his undoing with the result that he has missed his objective the fickle character of the winds over the water especially over such expanses as the north sea constitutes another and seriously adverse factor storms squalls gales and in winter blizzards spring up with magical suddenness and are so severe that no aircraft could hope to live in them but such visitations are more to be dreaded by the lighter than air than by the heavier than air machines the former offers a considerable area of resistance to the tempest and is caught up by the whirlwind before the pilot fully grasps the significant chance of the natural phenomenon once a dirigible is swept out of the hands of its pilot its doom is sealed on the other hand the speed attainable by the aeroplane constitutes its safety it can run before the wind and meantime can climb steadily and rapidly to a higher altitude until at last it enters a contrary wind or even a tolerably quiescent atmosphere even if it encounters the tempest head-on there is no immediate danger if the aviator keep cool this fact has been established times out of number and the airman has been sufficiently skillful and quick-witted to succeed in frustrating the destructive tactics of his natural enemy only a short while ago in france british airmen who went aloft in a gale found the latter too strong for them although the machine was driven full speed ahead it was forced backwards at the rate of ten miles per hour because the independent speed of the aeroplane was less than the velocity of the wind but a dirigible has never succeeded in weathering a gale. Its bulk, area, and weight, combined with its relatively slow movement, are against it, with the result that it is hurled to destruction. All things considered, the dirigible is regarded as an impracticable acquisition to a fleet, except in the eyes of the Germans, who have been induced to place implicit reliance upon their monsters the gullible teuton public confidently believes that their dreadnoughts of the air will complete the destruction of the british fleet but responsible persons know full well that they will not play such a part but must be reserved for scouting hitherto in naval operations mosquito watercraft such as torpedo boats have been employed in this service but these swift vessels suffer from one serious disability the range of vision is necessarily limited and a slight mist hanging over the water blinds them the enemy may even pass within half a mile of them and escape detection the zeppelin from its position one thousand feet or more above the water in clear weather has a tremendous range of vision the horizon is about forty miles distant as compared with approximately eight miles in the case of the torpedo boat 
Of course, an object, such as a battleship, may be detected at a far greater range. Consequently, the German naval program is to send the Zeppelin a certain distance ahead of the battleship squadron. The dirigible from its coin of vantage would be able to sight a hostile squadron if it were within visual range and would communicate the fact to the commander of the fleet below. The latter would decide his course according to information received. Thus, he would be enabled to elude his enemy, or, if the tidings received from the aerial scout should be favorable, to dispose his vessels in the most favorable array for attack. The German code of naval tactics does not foreshadow the use of dirigible aircraft as vessels of attack. Scouting is the primary and indeed the only useful duty of the dirigible. Although it is quite possible that the aerial craft might participate in a subsequent naval engagement, as, indeed, has been the case. Its participation, however, would be governed entirely by climatic conditions. The fact that the dirigible is a weak unit of attack in naval operations is fully appreciated by all the belligerents. The picture of a sky black with zeppelins may appeal to the popular imagination, and may induce the uninitiated to cherish the belief that such an array would strike terror into the hearts of the foe, but the naval authorities are well aware that no material advantage would accrue from such a force. In the first place, they would constitute an ideal target for the enemy's vessels. They would be compelled to draw within range in order to render their own attack effective, and promiscuous shooting from below would probably achieve the desired end. One or more of the hostile aircraft would be hit within a short while. Such disasters would undoubtedly throw the aerial fleet into confusion, and possibly might interfere with the tactical developments of its own friends upon the water below. The shells hurled from the zeppelins would probably inflict but little damage upon the warships beneath. Let it be conceded that they weigh about 500 pounds, which is two-thirds of the weight of the projectile hurled from the Krupp 128-centimeter howitzer. Such a missile would have but little destructive effect if dropped from a height of 1,000 feet. To achieve a result commensurate with that of the 28-centimeter howitzer, the airship would have to launch the missile from a height of about 7,000 feet. To take aim from such an altitude is impossible, especially at a rapidly moving target such as a battle cruiser. The fact must not be forgotten that Count Zeppelin himself has expressed the opinion, the result of careful and prolonged experiments, that his craft is practically useless at a height exceeding 5,000 feet. Another point must not be overlooked. In a spirited naval engagement, the combatants would speedily be obliterated from the view of those aloft by the thick pall of smoke. The combination of gunfire and emission from the furnaces and a blind attack would be just as likely to damage friend as foe. Even if the aircraft ventured to descend as low as 5,000 feet, it would be faced with another adverse influence. The discharge of the heavy battleship guns would bring about such an agitation of the air above as to imperil the delicate equilibrium of an airship. Nor must one overlook the circumstance that in such an engagement the zeppelins would become the prey of hostile aeroplanes. The latter, being swifter and nimbler, would harry the cumbersome and slow-moving dirigible in the manner of a dog baiting a bear to such a degree that the dirigible would be compelled to sheer off to secure its own safety. Desperate bravery and grim determination may be magnificent physical attributes, but they would have to be superhuman to face the stinging recurrent attacks of mosquito aeroplanes.
The limitations of the Zeppelin, and in fact of all dirigible aircraft, were emphasized upon the occasion of the British aerial raid upon Cuxhaven. Two Zeppelins, bravely put out to overwhelm the cruisers and torpedo boats which accompanied and supported the British seaplanes, but when confronted with well-placed firing from the guns of the vessels below, they quickly decided that discretion was the better part of valor and drew off. In naval operations, the aeroplane is a far more formidable foe, although here again there are many limitations. The first and most serious is the severely limited radius of action. The aeroplane motor is a hungry engine, while the fuel capacity of the tank is restricted. The German military authorities speedily realized the significance of this factor and its bearing upon useful operations, and forthwith carried out elaborate endurance tests. Innumerable flights were made with the express purpose of determining how long a machine could remain in the air upon a single fuel supply. The results of these flights were collated, and the achievements of each machine in this direction carefully analyzed, I mean average drawn up, and then pigeonholed. The results were kept secret, only the more sensational records being published to the world. As the policy of standardization in the construction of aeroplanes was adopted, the radius of action of each type became established. It is true that variations of this factor, even among vessels exactly similar in every respect, are inevitable, but it was possible to establish a reliable mean average for general guidance. End of chapter 18, Aircraft and Naval Operations, Part 1 Recording by William Tomko